0: Today is February twenty ninth, two thousand and sixteen, and my guest is Marina Krakowski, journalist and author. Her latest book is *The Middleman Economy: How Brokers, Agents, Dealers, and Everyday Matchmakers Create Value and Profit*. It's a short book, but it's one that's rich in applied economics and ideas and relevance for today's uh, world of commerce. And it's our topic for today. Marina, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. Your introduction is titled. It's got a great title. No one likes a middleman, but most of us are middlemen. Uh, Let's look at both parts of that sentence. Why do you write no one likes a middleman?
1: Well, this is a, a big theme in my book is that people have long been suspicious of middlemen. People tend to think, and this is true across cultures as far as I can see and across time, um, to think of middlemen as parasites, as people who aren't actually producing anything. They're not creating any value. They're just sort of living off the efforts of others. And, of course, a big part of my book is to challenge that
0: view. Is it true?
1: Well, it can be true. It, it is true in some cases, or we, we think that it's true you know, to some extent, um, but more often than not, you know, middlemen would not stay in business if they didn't genuinely provide value.
0: Yeah, I think that observation, which uh, – and in, in what your book does extremely well is tell us what that value is. It's not obvious sometimes, uh, but I think people have a suspicion – Uh, That There must be some exploitation going on if somebody who's, quote, not doing anything is making money off the rest of us. And I think that presumption, uh, I think which comes unfortunately from a combination of there are such occasionally parasites who who are able to pull that off often with the help of, say, regulation that prevents certain things from happening, but -hmm. also from just just lack of understanding of what profits and and the world of commerce is about – it has uh, it does create a lot of i think built in suspicion so why do you write we are all middlemen
1: well this is just the idea that
0: <laughs> for most of us I'm sorry.
1: yeah yeah i mean middlemen are um sort of hidden in plain sight i mean anybody who's connecting other people in a, in a net network is, is a middleman, you know, roughly speaking, particularly if they're providing value in, in that process. And so certainly brokers and agents and, and dealers and salespeople, which, you know, uh, certainly constitute a, a huge part of the economy. They fit the bill, but also people in, um, non-obvious middleman jobs like, uh, you know, wedding planners or um, people, you know, who are middle managers in a company who are uh, transmitting messages and coordinating the efforts of multiple people. These are also middlemen. I mean, if we really stop to think uh, about what we do and, and the role that we play in our own social networks, we are, um, we are all middlemen. And the question really becomes, you know, what value can we create? What more can we do to facilitate um, productive activity within our own networks?
0: I guess in some sense I am a middleman even though I don't charge my listeners uh, through Liberty Fund, the sponsor of this podcast, and uh, unfortunately I don't pay my guests uh, other than through the excitement of reaching a broader audience. But you could could create your own podcast and and reach out to people who are interested in your ideas or to try to interest people in the ideas in your book, but you're using a middleman.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's actually why middlemen have become more prevalent with the rise of the internet. And the internet has reduced distribution costs, has enabled many people to take on these traditional gatekeeper roles, you know, instead of a radio station or TV network or, you know, magazine deciding who to, you know, who to have on as a guest or whom to interview. Now it's, you know, anybody who's running a, a podcast or um, a blog or the like is playing that same role. And so there are many, many more people playing those middleman roles.
0: And as a result, the, the the middlemen who were involved in that process of publicizing a book, it used to be there were a handful of places you knew you tried to get your author on, and now it's a much broader list. It's a much more challenging and, I, I suppose, uh, game than it used to be.
1: Yes, and it's always changing.
0: So it's interesting that the Internet has increased the potential for intermediaries. Uh, You quote Bill Gates uh, that people would originally – I don't know which part of this is Bill Gates. His his part is the phrase friction-free capitalism. But um, Mm -hmm. some people – maybe it was Gates, but certainly others – thought that, well, once the Internet comes along and we can all look for stuff, um, we're going to have friction-free capitalism now. We don't need – search costs are almost zero – we're not going to need middlemen anymore. No intermediaries. just going to go straight to the source. And that certainly has not happened. Why not?
1: That's right. I mean, the, the essence of it is that transaction costs have fallen for everybody, but they have fallen more, in most cases, for professional middlemen than they have for the rest of us. And so if professional middlemen can do their Their work more efficiently than we can, then it still makes sense for us to turn to the professionals rather than doing things ourselves.
0: So let's take an example. One of the more uh, mundane, but fascinating uh, examples that you mentioned a minute ago is the wedding planner. Uh, What what role does a, how do do you make a living as a wedding planner? I mean, there are people who do this for their friends or used to do it for their friends and go out and try to help the bride or the groom get stuff done that was needed for the day of the wedding. But now there's a very specialized task called a wedding planner that is persisting in in the modern world uh... how did it come about and why does it persist
1: yeah well wedding planners have been around for a long time um, but they were seen as a, a luxury and something that only people who you know spend a fortune on their weddings can afford and now more and more people are hiring wedding planners and and most of us if we think about a wedding planner we think of a, a coordinator someone who just handles all the logistics and you know, all the hassles of planning a wedding. But a wedding planner actually does a lot more in in this uh, middleman sense. So I see a wedding planner as fulfilling uh, a couple of main roles. Uh, One of them is uh, is the the concierge, you know, the, the person who is, Handling all the, all the pesky little details and making the process of planning a wedding as as simple and carefree as possible for, for a bride. And also uh, helping the bride make, um, all these uh, high stakes decisions, uh, without getting too anxious about it. So that's the, that's the concierge role. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. But I think, um, more interestingly, a wedding planner is also an enforcer. Um, and what I mean by an enforcer is a person who has the clout to keep both sides honest. And in this case, it's primarily keeping the um, wedding vendors honest. Um, you can get the same list of vendors um, that the, that a wedding planner might use, but those same professionals are probably not going to do as good a job for you as they would for the professional wedding planner, and there are various reasons for that. I mean, one of them is just that the wedding planner can speak the language of uh, of both sides. You know, because of her, typically it's a she. You know, her experience uh, planning weddings. You know, she knows how to talk to florists and uh, bakers and. All the other professional you know, photographers and so on and understands what, what brides want. And, and so is sort of a, a translator, a cultural broker between the two sides. But, but, uh, more importantly, I think, um, the wedding planner, um, just has these long run repute, um, you know, it has a long run reputation and long run relationships with all these vendors that she can leverage on behalf of the bride. So, so a bride is not going to be a repeat customer. And therefore, just won't be able to get the same level of quality and service working um, directly.
0: Um, so, th- I thought this is a fantastic example. Again, it's pretty mundane, but it, it really highlights the economics. Uh, I thought really beautifully. So, he, in a way, and you you list six different types of middlemen, and they overlap. And as you point out, also, and we'll, I will probably get to all six. But the enforcer is one of them. Somebody enforces quality. The concierge is the second. But you think of a concierge in the modern world as being somewhat obsolete because, you know, hey, I can use Google. I can look up florists. I can see how they're rated. And I thought the point you made, first of all, sometimes that list is very long. And yeah. sometimes there are things about florists that you don't know that doesn't come up in the reviews that are very idiosyncratic relative to what you're, what's important to you. What's important to this particular wedding, this venue, the way you want them arranged, whatever it is that the wedding planner can do, and then pick from that list in a way that you can't. But I think the deeper point is the one you, which I love is the is the one you made that that even if you had the list of who are the really good ones, say even there might be some ones who have good reviews who aren't good, or who are the ones who are right for you, how they will perform is not the same. And and I think people forget that efforts really important and that any one time there's a potential for um, slacking and and not doing exactly. the best job and that the, the long-term perspective of that wedding planner has a huge impact in in terms of the incentives facing those vendors
1: Exactly you you put that very well it's 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 really that distinction between you know adverse selection and moral hazard you know the um, assessing out the intrinsic quality of somebody their you know the, the potential to to do a good job versus their incentive to actually do a good job on any given transaction and the long run player has an advantage over the the one time buyer in eliciting uh, the the highest um quality service at any one time
0: and there's a real art to the concierge part um as you point out, a lot of people now. They don't want to see a person. <laughs> They're happy to sit in their sure. hotel room, the literal concierge. They're happy yes. to sit in their hotel room and Google around for restaurants or sightseeing or things they want to do. So how does a, a, a human concierge uh, compete effectively? You know, I gave one example. Sometimes you'll know that a rating is, was earned a long time ago. And they've lost their qualities and what it used to be. But a, a really first-rate concierge can still thrive in today's world. How, how is that possible?
1: Yeah, I mean, it happens because, I mean, there are individual differences. Some people definitely do prefer to do things by themselves and they don't mind spending hours and hours figuring things out for themselves, like, like a big trip that you're planning. I mean, to me, that's the classic example. Um, if you're planning a simple trip, yeah, it's, it's very easy to do this yourself and it doesn't take very much time. And, you know, you jump on your favorite website and you make your bookings and, and you can do that very quickly and easily without much angst. Um, But uh, if you're planning a complex vacation to a destination you've never been to and there are gazillion choices and you're the kind of person who doesn't really enjoy doing hours and hours of Internet research and if you're the kind who gets anxious about making the right decision or the wrong decision, then you're the perfect candidate to work with a with a concierge, you know, in the in the sense that I'm using concierge, um, it's the travel agent who specializes in your destination, who's planned these kinds of trips for many many past clients, um, who's very good at matching your deepest, you know, needs and wants with the, the the kinds of options that are available in that destination. They can save you a lot of time and self-doubt um, about making the wrong decision by planning out an itinerary that is yeah, pretty well customized to what you want.
0: Yeah, I I took a trip to London last year. I'd never been to London and there's, you know, 80 hotels in the area that I, I'm pretty sure I know where I want to be in terms of geography, which part of London. But there's 80 mm-hmm. hotels that have pretty good ratings and I'm not convinced they're all going to be fine. Sometimes they're all fine, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but all of them have negative reviews, and you're always wondering, was that just that crazy person who didn't like <laughs> the orange juice, or is that, you know, scary? That's, that, that's,
1: exact, that's exactly right. Yeah, actually, the travel agent that I interviewed for this book said, you never know, like, you know, who, who the person is. Is it somebody in their underwear sitting in their basement writing the review? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she can suss out those kinds of things. But even if, you know, even if you knew that all those reviews were, were good, um, it, there's still that matching process. And there's the, the question of how do you factor in, how do you weigh all these various factors, you know, the the, the, the location and the price. And, um, oh, gosh, there's just so many aspects to a hotel um, to, to figure out, so that one decision can can easily bog you down, and, and so this is where it's really helpful to have somebody just kind of make that decision for you.
0: Yeah, I was impressed. There's still travel agents because um, yeah. I don't use one, and it's an interesting thing. You know, I don't travel to London often. I could imagine going again in the next five years, mm-hmm. but I'll probably go back to the same hotel, and that may not be the best thing. It's probably it'll be fine. So I'm probably going since it was okay. I'm probably going to go back to the same one. But I think what's interesting is how hard it is when you're doing something infrequently, ideally getting married is something you only do once. Um, You might do it two or three times, but you probably won't (laughs) do it even, even if you do it once, you're probably not doing it in the same city. So this (laughs) opportunity to rely on somebody else's expertise is really pretty fantastic.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's it's under, it's underappreciated. I think, you know, after writing this book, I've started uh, outsourcing more of those kinds of tasks that, I mean, the thing about the internet is it's very easy to feel like, yes, I can do it myself. So why should I ask somebody else to do it? But, you know, it's just so easy to, to, um, to dive in and drown as somebody put it.
0: And it's worth pointing out that even when you use the internet, using an inter- usually often you're using a middleman. So I, I happen to use okay. kayak a lot. Kayak's a middleman, right? It's I don't go to each hotel's website. I don't go to or Tripadvisor. I don't go to each airplane or you know each airline or each hotel's website. I use uh, an internet intermediary.
1: That is so true. Yeah, the the internet is full of uh, of middlemen like that, and then the question becomes, well, which middleman do I trust, and and how do I compare them? And yeah, it's just very easy to get sucked in.
0: So let's talk about uh, an example of of uh, an intermediary and the inter- a middleman on the internet, uh, which is OpenTable. So mm-hmm. OpenTable, to, again, as an economist, really interesting example. Uh, talk about what they're business model, how it started, and uh, the the challenges they faced and how they overcame them through the decisions they made.
1: Yeah, OpenTable is an interesting example to dive into because as um, diners, we, we sort of take it for granted. It just seems so simple, but there's actually a lot going on behind the scenes to make it all work. Um, because it's it's a two sided market, and with with two sided markets, uh, you know, you always have this challenge of getting both sides on board because open table would not be valuable to diners if plenty of uh, restaurants were not on it. And so the, the first challenge so even if you give away the service for free to the diners, you know there's still the challenge of uh, of uh, getting restaurants to sign up and and to pay. For, for being on it and restaurants pay a monthly fee and they also pay a booking fee that is about a dollar typically for, um, for every seat for every person in, in the party making re- the reservation. And, uh, it was actually really hard to sell this idea to restaurants, even though restaurants stood to benefit a lot. I mean, they, they got marketing as a result and the big selling point is, um, to be able to fill in seats at the, at the last, at the last minute.
0: It's a reser- – uh, just to make yeah. it clear for those who don't know, it's a reservation yeah. service to make reservations at a, at a restaurant, which was, seemed like kind of a trivial thing. Why, why would I need to get on the – why can't I just call the restaurant and make sure, a sure. reservation? It's, just, it's bizarre on the surface that such a thing could make a profit.
1: Yeah, yeah, so yeah, to step back, yes, this actually solves a, a big problem for diners, which is that you're trying to make a reservation and typically you have to call, you know, without a service like Open Table, you have to call restaurants one by one to see if they have a table available for your size party at your time and, and it can be you know, it can be a pain. If you've ever been through this process, um, sometimes you have to leave a message and hope that somebody will call you back. And often there is no availability. But if you go to a site like OpenTable, which you know you can also get an app for, you know, an app for it, um, and then uh, with uh, just a few taps, you you get to see right in front of you who has openings for when you want in the area that you want. So it greatly simplifies that that search process. So that's it from the from the customer's
0: point of view. How about for but, the restaurant? Yeah, why, why, yeah. Why would they bother?
1: Okay. Well, so for them, it, there are a few benefits, but but uh, the the biggest. I mean, basically, it boils down to filling those tables and and also not having to answer the phone as often, not dealing with that appointment book. Even though you know, most restaurants will also take reservations over the phone, even if they're using open table. And so the promise to the restaurant is that they will have fewer uh, openings because diners will be able to see, oh, look, here's, a, here's an opening at 7 o'clock. I can't get a table anywhere else, but I can get one at, at this restaurant. And boom, you know, you've got your booking and the restaurant has, um, has a table filled. So that's great for both sides.
0: But the challenge the restaurant faces, which is, was the interesting part I didn't think enough about, from uh, the value proposition that OpenTable is providing. You've mentioned some of them, but one of them is the fact that people, it's kind of obvious that not everybody keeps a reservation. And so a a last minute cancellation or a no-show, a simple no-show, they just, they make the decision to don't show up is, can be disastrous for restaurants, very expensive to leave that table unfilled to have held it and then not fill it. And so, the obvious way to do that, to avoid that, is to charge people to make reservations. But that has a problem, too. So talk about the challenges that that, that has and then how Open Table manages to reduce no-shows to cancellations.
1: Yeah, um, cancellations are not as big a problem for restaurants as no-shows. Because if somebody cancels before they show up, then the restaurant could still take a walk-in, potentially at least. Whereas if you made a reservation and you just don't show up, then the, re- you know, you're like a dog in the manger. You're holding on to that table and the restaurant can't give it away, but at the same time, the restaurant hasn't taken your money. I mean, it's kind of a funny thing because it's part of the hospitality industry, but in a, ho- you know, it, it's just diff- different parts of the hotel, of the hospitality industry work differently. So uh, hotels take, um a non-refundable deposit, you know, they take your credit card basically. So if you don't show up, your credit card still can get charged. But for whatever reason, it's traditionally been a no-no, um, in, in the restaurant industry to, um, to charge diners. And if you were the, the one restaurant that sticks its neck out and tries this thing, well, you know, that, that's going to hurt you. So there has to be some kind of a change, a collective change. And, and that may, that's starting to happen with, with higher-end restaurants and, Um, In in big cities sometimes, but um, when Open Table was starting out, this was was, uh, basically unheard of. And, And so restaurants could not charge for a reservation. They couldn't do it themselves. They couldn't do it through Open Table. In fact, I don't know if Open Table even considered it. So they're stuck with this problem of of uh, no-shows, and no-shows can be a problem online or they could be a problem over the phone. You know, there's just a perennial bane of restaurants' existence. But um, but their fear was, you know, when Open Table came to pitch their service to the restaurants, the restaurateurs feared that um, no-shows would actually be more common if people could make their bookings through Open Table. And, and their concern was that people just would not take... Uh, these, um, online reservations seriously that they, uh, that a, Open Table was making it too easy to create a new account. You know, you could become, um, uh, you know, John Doe at yahoo.com or John Doe 357 at com, or just to have multiple accounts and, and make reservations and then no show with impunity. And so Open Table to convince restaurants that this wouldn't happen really had to create policies to, minimize the chances that this would happen and and they did a bunch of things about that and it's very tricky to do because they didn't want to make you sign up with an official email address you know they did want to make it easy for diners so there's always this need to um, keep both sides happy and they managed to do that and and they did it in a number of ways one of them was this loyalty program, which gave people an incentive to kind of just stick with one email address because they would get um, rewards, they'd get these uh, these points for every reservation that they made and, and actually um, completed, and, and they would get a cash payout after a certain number of these. So they wanted to stick with the same uh, email address. And also the restaurant um the open table uh would uh remind people of um of their reservation a day or two beforehand, which is such a simple move, but it's 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 really helpful because um People just don't think about the restaurant. you know, I, I think about this, but, you know, most people probably don't think about this. The people who routinely no show are not thinking about the problems that their no show is causing the restaurant. So it's not necessarily that they're just, that they're being, uh, you know, selfish or, or malicious. Um, they're they're just not thinking of it. And so that little reminder email often is all it takes to get people to, to show up and uh and and then if they if they don't show up then um open table also uh keeps keeps track of that uh so uh, you know after Good, a certain number of
0: yeah. go ahead keep going sorry
1: oh, i just wanted to say that after a certain number of no shows they get kicked off the site so you know th- there are consequences and these are kinds of consequences that um open table as a middleman is in a better position to impose than any restaurant could on its own because they're aggregating data from across restaurants, right? So they know that I have not showed up at this restaurant and that restaurant and the other restaurant whereas any one restaurant would only know about that one no show and would also have a harder time just barring a customer from making a reservation in the future. So it's just one of the many ways that a middleman has a has an advantage over the um, the buyer or the seller interacting directly.
0: And I think, don't they send out a... It's sort of thoughtfully worded if you miss yeah. the reservation. So it's not like, how could you do this, you awful person, <laughs> but did something go wrong? Do you remember what that is? I can't remember. Yeah,
1: I mean, the interesting thing about that is that OpenTable is not on, on site. It's not like there's a company representative at each restaurant um, checking people in. So they have to go by whatever... The restaurant is telling them, but at the same time, they know that the restaurant might always might not always be honest with them because the restaurant has an incentive to report a no show, just a small incentive to cheat that way. Well, they that save thereby,
0: a yeah, That's saving a dollar for, for a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs>
1: you know and a restaurant's very quickly realize that it's just it's just not worth it an open table will be on to them but but i mean what's really clever about this is that open table is able to police all of this from from a distance the they're they're really asking the diner to then say no 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 i was there what are you talking about and and, and that's how they can resolve these disputes and and of course if the restaurant's realize that there's this loop um, that the diner will have a say in the matter, then they they quickly learn not to, you know, play those games.
0: So I just wanted to speculate for a minute, because you talked about the cultural phenomenon and hospitality industry, that, you know, if you stay in a hotel, they usually give you a, a rule that if you don't cancel within a certain time frame, it's usually 24 or 48 hours, they're going to charge your credit card. Of course, you know that in advance. They tell you that. The first time you might not know it, but you eventually learn it. Mm-hmm. Um Whereas other types of no-showing, like restaurants typically, have no cost. Now, one argument would be, well, you don't know how much you're going to spend at the restaurant, whereas the room's fixed. You know what kind of room it is. But restaurants could charge a flat fee, $10, $20. And so just to think about it for a minute, it's an interesting uh, dinner table economics question for those of you out there who uh, you might want to pause this and and think about it on your own for a minute. I'm just thinking about it here. I'm going to give my answer and then – I'm gonna let Marina respond, but uh, it seems to me that, of course, we do pay for the un for the no shows. They just get spread across everybody. It's part of the cost of doing business. It's somewhat akin, not exactly, but it's somewhat akin to somebody walking out on a bill or um, stealing something out of the the uh, the hotel. In the case of a hotel, like a towel or uh, or something else, it's part of the cost of doing business. Every restaurant knows that some reservations won't be shown. People won't show up. And so they can't maximize their capacity on any one night. And since they have to make a living and cover their fixed costs and a little bit more to make it worthwhile, presumably the prices on the menu reflect that. So you're paying. It's just in a very hidden way that gives you the flexibility of canceling without a direct cost. It's built into the cost of every meal and in most restaurants that take reservations. So then the question would be, why doesn't a restaurant come along and charge uh, lower prices on their menu, but reservation fees so that people who are honest and keep their word will be able to enjoy cheaper meals. And I guess the answer there would be that most of us want the flexibility of choosing where we eat on any one night. We might want to make a reservation a few hours in advance or a day in advance or a week in advance, but we like the freedom to change our mind or something comes up much more often than a trip to a faraway city gets canceled with a hotel reservation, so I think that might be part of the reason why that cultural norm is there. What do you think? Yeah,
1: that's an interesting analysis. And you just reminded me of something else that that, that is very clever that OpenTable is doing. It's so simple. Um, when you said that people want the flexibility of making a spur-of-the-moment decision about where to dine, um, people in the early days would make multiple would, would make multiple reservations for the same exact time which is uh, you know obviously impossible to fulfill and so one of the rules that um open table uh, instituted very early on is that you cannot make a, uh, two reservations within 2 hours of one another such a simple you know technological fix to a problem um, so so that was interesting um, yeah, I don't really know why the cultural norm exists. And, of course, there are exceptions to that. If you want to make a, a reservation for a New Year's Eve um, yeah. a party, a prefix, you know, you know what the price is. You have to put your credit card down or some popular restaurants in New York City or large parties and so on. Um, you know, the restaurant is always trying to balance the cost of, you know, the possibility of a no-show with the cost of, uh, you know, disgruntled customers. I, I think that norm... Is is beginning to change very slowly, but I, I really can't say why it's it's been the way it's been. You know, sometimes these things just sort of evolve <laughs> for for no good reason.
0: Yeah, we talked on this program before about the fact that the markup for food is uh, contains the fact that you you sit at the table for a while, and this was uh, an insight I first heard from Earl Thompson, uh, who was at UCLA. And Earl made the point that the longer it takes to eat something, the more expensive it is to the restaurant, because it takes a longer time for the table to turn over, and that means the number of customers per night is going to be lower, and that means you have to recover your fixed costs from a smaller group of people, and therefore the prices have to be higher. And it's just a you know, I think it's a fantastic uh, a fantastic insight that captures part of what's going on. Um
1: That's right. And yet, I I just want to add to that, that when you do takeout at that same restaurant and you're not costing them a table at all, you still pay the same price. I don't know any restaurant that charges less for takeout than for dining in.
0: Well, actually, some do. Um, uh, In fact, uh, Emily Scarbeck at EconLog, a sister site of EconTalk under the Library of Economics and Liberty, was recently uh, speculating about that. Of course, some takeout prices are cheaper, uh, but of course, then you have to monitor people who – do the takeout thing, and then go sit down,
1: <laughs> right? Uh, which, right. Is,
0: which is one of the challenges of charging different prices. Um, but what I was going to say, i I'd lost my train of thought, but I'm, it's back, is that given that it takes longer, one solution to that would be to, to charge, uh, have a meter at each table that <laughs> is how long you're there. If you want to dawdle over your coffee, you can, or your dessert, or whatever it is. And of course, you know, people... That somehow takes some of the fun out of the dining that, 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 <laughs> that the clock's ticking on you like that, I guess. Well, and-
1: it, it bursts that um, bubble of uh, romance around the the dining experience yep. where you feel like you're – yeah, you're a guest at somebody's house. And even though you have to pay at the end of the meal, it's not uh, always in your face.
0: And there are guests who probably should have a meter in your own house even, but we'll leave that to the side. <laughs> uh, but, but a serious thought is that Starbucks you know, lets you buy – lets you in the sense that there's no explicit rule against it. You can sit and buy a cup of coffee and use it as your home office for hours, and they never say, uh, can I get you anything else? And meanwhile, people who come in who'd like to sit down for 15 minutes can't find a table. It's a very interesting decision they've made to not only not charge, not meter how long you're at the table, but not encourage you to buy more stuff to earn the right to sit at that table. It's basically a rent-free loan all day. Uh, with a purchase of anything. And even, I suppose, if you just sat down, they probably would leave you alone too. Kind of like a public library with coffee on the side. Yeah. Uh, I want to turn to an issue that that you uh, discuss in the book that, that's really fascinating, which is some of these jobs, and the wedding planner is one of them, uh, and, and to some extent open tables another, but the wedding planner is a, a particularly good example. The skill set of of the woman that you highlight in the book and feature in the book, in a way... There's nothing explicitly uh, obvious about what she's, quote, good at. She makes a very good living, evidently. She makes a relatively large amount of money uh, and and does this not just, as you you point out, not just for high-end fancy weddings, but for more average-cost weddings. People are willing to pay something, to, not trivial amount, to get her assistance. How does that persist? Why doesn't competition, there are no barriers to entry in her case, usually usually aren't in these kind of situations – What's keeping her fees as high as they are?
1: Yeah, th- this is a, this is a question I explore in the book, and I, I think it comes down to being able to make increasingly good matches the longer you are in business. Um, and there, there's an interesting study I talk about um, that deals with uh, placement agencies and how they're able to make better and, and better matches. And these these economists actually were able to analyze, you know, the, the numbers and and to find that, um, well, I don't remember the details, but something to the effect that um, the more that a, that a given um, client is, well, actually not a given client, but like a, a, a worker is with a particular agency, the higher the markup uh, that agency can charge uh, for that worker's Service for that worker's time, Um, and and furthermore, the the more of that markup that the agency can keep, so the agency benefits more from the longevity of that relationship than does the client, uh, than does the worker. So, so what's going on um, with the with the wedding planners is is, uh, somewhat similar, I think, which is that. The longer that they do business with the various wedding vend- vendors in their town, uh, the more they know, you know, which florist uh, can make a, a beautiful bouquet of daffodils or, or orchids or whatever it is, and uh, which um, uh, linen provider, you know, ha- happens to have, uh, you know, silver tablecloths. Um, I'm not very good at coming up with these examples. <laughs>
0: I, I can't um, help but I can't help but mention that when somebody tells us they're getting married, I always say, remember that no one remembers the color of the napkins. And the, the amount that people yes. agonize over these decisions always depresses me. So I'm just going to say that. Right. Carry on.
1: Yes, yes. But but the, these are all things that are very, very important to the brides. And, you know, having been a bride, I understand. I understand that. It's you know, it's probably the most important day of, grooms, your, of your little some life. Some
0: grooms also and care about the color of the napkins. I just wasn't one of them. I just want to say okay. that.
1: Okay. <laughs> So um anyway going back to the to the wedding planners they they know who to go to they can do this very efficiently and they can do it with increasing efficiency and increasing quality over time and so it's hard for a new wedding planner to compete with with that you know and having the reputation of course for doing all of that also makes it easier for the established I mean just like in any business for the established wedding um planners to um you know to get the new business.
0: But I'd never thought about that with the employment agencies. It always it stuns me when I read the markups that employment agencies are able to earn. And some of that is is due to the fact that they absorb some of the costs of a, a lawsuit, they absorb some of the costs of unemployment, They, um, you know, unfortunately or not, the regulatory stuff around labor is and working has gotten more expensive, which means that it's more and more profitable for someone to take on all those costs in help in not just in, in suggesting workers but in being the employer for a temp, you know in sending out people as temporary workers, but they work for the agency, not for the uh, the client but the right. point that that it's always difficult to ascertain quality and that I can't just tell an employee-er that I'm a fabulous worker, but that somebody that vouches for me and whose reputation is on the line, the ability, it's really the ability to create a brand name around something that doesn't normally have a brand name or that's hard to, a brand name that's hard to establish.
1: Yeah, that that's <clears throat> that's exactly right. I mean, now you're talking about what I call the, the certifier uh, role. The ability to credibly certify because you're, staking your long-term reputation on your recommendation that is one of the un- unappreciated or underappreciated um, values uh, that um, that a middleman brings to these transactions so a placement agency you know is an example of that
0: and I was surprised to see it I, one of this other surprises in the book that, that that's happening on Craigslist and eBay uh, which I'm not a big uh, consumer or a or provider stuff on those sites, the idea that there are people uh, reselling stuff on Craigslist, used stuff. Now, one of the reasons, I guess, is that uh, it's hard to have a brand name for used stuff. It had a brand name once when it was new, but you don't know what it's gone through. So you right. don't know quite exactly how good the quality is. You can take a picture, which is nice. which it it's for some goods, that's enough. But for other goods, it's not. And talk about people who are making... A reasonable living, or at least have been, uh, on Craigslist reselling other people's stuff that's available on Craigslist, which was amazing to me.
1: I know it's it's so counterintuitive. You know, like can anything be more direct than than Craigslist? Well, I guess it, it, you can think of other things because Craigslist itself is a kind of middleman. But why do you need additional middle middleman? On the
0: middleman, exactly.
1: <laughs> and I mean, it's not just on Craigslist; it's on eBay, it's on LinkedIn, it's on YouTube. It, it actually happens. All over the place. Middlemen emerge to serve these various um, needs, and um, I think the biggest uh, need the, that uh, that a middleman can can fill on uh, on Craigslist, and this is the person I profile, um, is um, to provide liquidity to to both sides. You know, the person who has an appliance that they're eager to get rid of because they're moving or because they just need quick cash; they're in desperate straits. And they just want to get rid of it, you know, as as quickly as possible. So the, they're willing to take, uh, you know, very little money for it. And that's what the middleman on Craigslist can do. He can swoop in as soon as he sees it, and he's the first one there, and he takes that appliance off that person's hands. And at the same time, he's able to provide that immediacy to the would-be buyer because he's um, not leaving. Uh, that price artificially low, you know, he gathers up the inventory when prices are low, which tends to be cyclical. And then he puts it out there at a price where it won't get, um, scooped up necessarily the same day. But, um, because of his experience, he knows that it will get bought at that price within a reasonable amount of time. And he's willing to sit patiently and wait for that to happen. And that, and that provides a service to the buyers because There's a good chance that an appliance will be available on Craigslist when the buyer needs it.
0: And that person's actually taking (laughs) the appliance into his house. It's not like one of these paper transactions where he's listing it. He's not – so that's what was interesting about it. He's not just creating his own list of what's for sale on Craigslist. He's buying it and then reselling it, but he's taking it – he's actually receiving it in the meantime, right? Right.
1: Yes, yes, he he does buy it outright, but you know it's very cheap, uh, so you know it's not like a huge capital investment. Um, he holds on to these appliances in his garage. You know, he can fit fifteen or twenty washers or dryers there, and and then he flips them. He he turns around and sells them within days.
0: And he makes—is this a full-time living? I think it was it, right.
1: Yeah, it's a full-time job, and it's a solid middle-class. Income. Um, he reports making twelve hundred to fifteen hundred dollars a week doing this. You know, profit. It's
0: a lot of money. Um, the other thing yeah. I was shocked about is uh, the power seller role on eBay. I think I think mm-hmm. you said four percent of the sellers on eBay are half of the merchandise. Is that do I have that number right?
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. More than half of all sales um, on eBay flows through what are called power sellers which are essentially middlemen because to get that power seller designation you need a, a certain sales volume and a certain uh, minimum feedback score which is rather high and so you end up to you know to achieve and sustain that um that level you need to be basically a middleman buying and selling other people's stuff so most most trade on eBay does not happen the way that it was originally built. It's not you know pez uh pez dispenser collectors trading with one another it's it's a, a lot of it is professional middlemen buying um oh somebody else's used designer fashion is the example that I use and and then selling it to people all over the world who are interested in the same stuff
0: yeah, it's like running a perpetual garage sale where you're always buying stuff from. Other garage sales <laughs> and, and and just you've got a reputation for throwing out the junk and keeping the better stuff. And so it persists. It's amazing.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, let's talk about a hated uh, middleman, which is a used car dealer. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people resent when they go to sell their car. They notice that if they sell it themselves, they can get a much, much better price than the dealer will give them. And they then tend to say, well, it figures dealers are awful. But explain why there's that gap to start with, and then how um, a middleman named Carlots, uh, a company called Carlots, is trying to change that process.
1: Right, right. I mean, there are three. There are really three sets of prices. There's a there's a dealer uh, trade in price. There's a sell it yourself price, and then there's. Um, you know, the price that a dealer could command. Um, So if you're not a dealer, then you're really choosing between trading in your used car. I'm talking from the point of view of someone who's trying to sell a car now. Um, You can trade it into a dealer and get, um, you know, much, much less than if you sold it yourself. Those are your two main options, and neither is very attractive because they both have huge downsides there's a lot less you know it's a huge hassle to try to sell a car yourself but if you sell it to a dealer then you're gonna lose a lot of money so um, what car Lots is doing is they're trying to step into into the middle in this sense um, the middle of the market um, to give you kind of the, the best of both worlds. So, um, the benefit of selling it yourself, meaning that you get to keep a lot of the value of the car, but also the benefit of selling to a dealer, which is that you don't have to, don't have to deal with all the hassles. Um, and their, their model is to make the process as efficient and as transparent as possible, which is, which is uh, what the traditional used car sales process has has lacked, and why so many people hate used car dealers. And to uh, address your question of why there's this why there's this gap, so part of it's the lemons problem, right? The problem that uh, the owner of a car knows. More about the quality of the car than the buyer does, and and so you kind of have to assume that you know, the quality isn't very good, or you have to pay a mechanic to inspect it, and and there's a, there's a cost to that. Um, but a, a bigger problem, according to this guy who started car lots, is that when you trade in your car, you're you're just at the very beginning of a very long in inefficient supply chain and so your car has to go from a dealer to uh to a wholesaler to an auction house to another dealer and there's transportation and and there's there's uh, a time lag and so cars depreciating yes. and so there's <laughs> just a lot of leakage throughout the process
0: so what is car lots doing differently
1: so car lots buys well, it actually doesn't buy your car. First of all, it takes it on consignment, and then they, instead of um, trying to, okay, so th- there are a few things. They they take it on consignment rather than buying it. They charge a service fee for selling your car. Instead of um, profiting from you know buying low and selling high, they charge a service fee to both the the. Uh, seller and the buyer, and that fee is fixed regardless of what they sell the car for. And they also don't pass that car on to a long chain of uh, of uh, other intermediaries. They sell it directly on on their own
0: lot. So I guess the argument there, what they're trying to – the, again, there's sort of the business proposition is that I don't have to be home all the time. They're relying to meet the pr- prospective buyer. Of my car, they get good at vetting buyers' reliability. So one person shows up at my house, and I have to take their check, or I'm not sure. Or it takes a while; they've got to get a bank check, so they can get better at say credit and other things. Mm-hmm. And uh, they also have the economy of scale. They have lots of cars, so there's more people are going to come there than going to come to you know economizing on the search costs, right? So. Yeah, like like you say, it's sort of the best of both worlds.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it it really even comes down to something as simple as posting pictures of your car. Now, most of us, when we sell our car, you know, we can maybe take you know five, ten pictures of our car. That just seems like a big deal. You know, it's not something we do all the time. Whereas they'll take. Typically, they'll take 85 pictures and they know exactly what angles they need, what customers will be looking for. And they do it in a matter of minutes because, you know, it's, it's like an assembly line for them. Um, so they can do it very efficiently. And then whereas we might post it on Craigslist or maybe cars.com, uh, you know, they post it on 10 sites. So they're just better at doing everything that you could on your own. They just, they just, this is their pros. This is what they do.
0: And right now they're in one city. Is that correct? Or are they expanding?
1: Yeah, they've expanded. Even when I was speaking with them a a year or more ago, they they were already in several cities in Virginia and they were expanding out to a few other states.
0: So CarMax does that as well, I guess. But I think the, the part that's interesting about them is that if you go to CarMax, you get a uh, an estimate for what they'll pay you for your car, which is very nice because it's real. It's actual an actual amount. It's not complicated like the dealer when you're doing a trade-in. You're never sure how much of it's actually the value of the car versus what you're really paying for the new car. Um, mm-hmm. But here, I guess, the other part that's the, the novelty of it, just the fixed amount. And it's a fixed amount. It's, it's the consignment aspect of it. It's a fixed amount per car. And as you point out, that inc- tends to encourage them encourages uh, people who want to sell higher uh, value cars in general because obviously if it's too high amount extra that you you still might want to sell yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, they, they charge a fixed fee regardless of the final sale price of the car. Um, and what's also interesting about that is that because they charge a fixed fee, Fee, the buyers also take that as a signal that you know, these, these dealers, these salespeople, aren't pushing a particular car on me. They're really in the service business of trying to help me find the best car for me because they have no incentive to push any particular
0: car. So I, I don't want to miss our, um, your taxonomy here. Your, your six categories are the bridge. The certifier, the enforcer, the risk bearer, the concierge, and the insulator. I think we've talked about three of them and really the bridge we've talked about, I think, implicitly. So that's mm-hmm. four. But talk about uh, the risk bearer and the insulator.
1: Okay. Well, so the, the risk bearer is um, very much related to being a certifier or enforcer, but it's all about really trying to Pool the risk, um, and discern external risk from what I call internal risk, but which, you know, economists would know as counterparty risk. So if you're a certifier or an enforcer, you have to know that the parties you're dealing with are, are trusted. That's what I would call the internal risk. And you want to avoid internal risk. You want to avoid dealing with people who are, you know, known for subpar quality or who you can't rely on. Um, but you do want to embrace, um, what I call external risk, the exogenous risk that, you know, we really can, we really cannot predict, um, you know, which startup company is going to take off and become, you know, the next Google or Facebook. And so venture capital, you know, in the venture capitalist example, that's the kind of risk that they're in a position to embrace because they're, they're pooling, you know, they're building a portfolio, right? They're pooling, they're aggregating risk from across many, sources and so they they're in a better position to handle to bear that kind of risk than uh, someone who's just doing you know individual um, sales
0: talk about the insulator the, okay which I, the love. Ins- I love yeah. The insulator is the greatest
1: thank you <laughs> I, I think the insulator is so cool and it's it's one that even economists don't really talk about much um, okay the insulator it's it's very different from the others because the others are more about uh, facilitating connections that aren't there whereas an insulator is someone who keeps people apart in uh, strategically important situations. so when we have an existing relationship sometimes it's it's actually more difficult to say certain things um, to the other person for example to negotiate on your own behalf um, there's often this trade-off between um, likeability and uh, and assertiveness you know you might be better off in the short run to assert yourself but, um, you might, um, seem less likable to, to, the, to your, uh, trading partner. And so this is where someone like a sports agent, um, or a lawyer can, can step in very shrewdly to intercede on your behalf, you know, with your team or your client and, and so on. Publicists play this role with the media on, on, on behalf of their clients because tooting your own horn is, you know, is also an, another thing that, that is sort of unseemly to do. And so, the insulator um, can be an, an important role, but it, it's sort of uh, – it's often invisible or we don't uh, appreciate it.
0: Yeah, it's utterly uh, – the reason I, I find it so fascinating is that obviously most of the time middlemen put people together. So the right. idea – that you keep them apart. So you do put them together, but you do it in a way that it's that arm's length thing and it's very –
1: Yeah,
0: I think people underestimate. Again, they look at certain middlemen and they say, oh, they're a waste of money because all they do is take a fee. And of course, they also have to represent you at an arm's length, which means they might say things. Just like it's unseemly for you to say, "Pay me more money." Socially, it's also Mm -hmm. unseemly for the agent to not ask for enough or to ask for too much when you would have. So there's a real risk, but it's worth it for most of these in many of these cases, obviously.
1: Yeah, um, that's such a win-win because what is bad for you is actually great for them. So you know, if you're a sports agent and you talk tough on behalf of your clients, Will you enhance your reputation as this, you know, as this great advocate. And so um, athletes flock to you. So it's it's just exactly, it's almost exactly the opposite of what you wouldn't do for yourself because it would be bad for your image. Um, Will it be wonderful for the middleman's image to do those same things on behalf of another person?
0: I was actually making a different point. I was actually Ah, saying that the agent has to be really good at figuring out what the client would want in terms of both being aggressive and, and easygoing because you know they're I'm not there. I'm not in the room. So oh, I sometimes, see. right? So the agent well, sure. is is talking to the press about the client and the client's kinda like can sometimes be grimacing, like, oh, no, I wouldn't have said it that way or whatever it is. And and so I think there's an incredible art It comes back to your point about the wedding planner. I think you really have – and you mentioned this a number of times with different kinds of intermediaries. You really have to be good at assessing the match, the quality of the match for both sides. Uh, You give the example in the book of the travel agent who says, I don't think – you you get to know that client well enough. You can say, I don't think that's going to be your favorite piece of that vacation. You probably would prefer to do this. And I think similarly for these insulators, their job – is to be tough and sometimes easy, but they have to know when, and they have to make sure that their client likes the stance they've taken. I think that must be very difficult.
1: That's true. That's true. And I think you're getting into this other point about, uh, you know, human intelligence. These are soft skills. They're, they're sort of intangible, but when, when they work well, you, you know, you don't necessarily see them working really well, but there's, there's a real art to a lot of uh, what these people
0: do. So I want to close with an example close to both of our hearts, which is the publishing business. Um, so we live in a time where it's easy to publish your own book. Uh, you can – there are many, many companies out there that will self-publish. The distribution channel is there. Uh, on Amazon, they'll they'll put your book up on their site. You can drive traffic to it, and you'll make, quote, all the profit. And yet you chose to publish your book with an intermediary, which uh, – It was an interesting decision you had to make. You may have used an agent. I did both for my last book. I gave away money to my agent and my publisher I could have kept for myself. Uh, And I think a lot of people, when they hear how little authors make, (laughs) you know, they make somewhere usually between 10 and 15% of the book. They what? You provided all the content and that's all you get? And the answer is, yeah, and it's a great deal because I have an alternative. So it better be the case that they provide enough value to make that a, a, a decent proposition. Oh, and, and of that fifty percent I give 15% of that to my agent. Mm-hmm. Or 10%, I don't even remember now, sorry. Um, but think how crazy that is. So why do we do that?
1: Yeah, yeah. well, I, I, I would separate the, the agent and the, and the publisher. Um, but, you know, the publisher is a, risk, is a risk bearer and is a classic example of a risk bearer. Um, if <laughs> I get to keep the, all the profit, assuming there's any profit to be had, right? <laughs> if if I were to publish myself, um, what's certain <laughs> is the cost. <laughs> we don't know if we'll ever uh, turn a profit, and particularly in, in something as uncertain as uh, the publishing industry and in any cultural industries, you know, highly unpredictable. So, um, I think, uh, a lot of first time authors are people who are not, um, in the industry, you just don't appreciate how hard it is to sell books, and, and um, I, you know, it's it's just almost impossible. You know, the odds are really stacked um, against. You know, the odds are really against you when you're publishing a book. Most books, I think the figure I've heard most often is ninety percent of um, of books lose money, and and the, the reason the publishers are able to stay. Uh, solvent is uh that the remaining 10 percent make so much that they uh cover all the others and of course um know no, which knows advance, which yeah you know. yeah 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 so as an author you're just not in as good a position to build a portfolio you know you cannot um put out a hundred books <laughs> and hope that uh that uh 10 of them are yeah. going to make enough money to cover the others yeah
0: but the other factor is that the costs are there that are just hard to see. It's not just that you might not get them back because you might not sell books, but you sometimes forget the, there's editing, there's printing, there's the design of the cover. There's a thousand things that make uh, a published finished product attractive and, and uh, that people find out about. And uh, I think it's just an example I like because there's so many times where people say, oh, people are being ripped off and they don't realize what the, all the costs are.
1: Yes. And, and unfortunately, you know, the the more um, I don't want to say ignorant, the, the more new you are to it, the the less you you see those things that you may not even understand that you need a professional cover designer. Because if you're if your cover is not professionally designed, then, you know, people won't even click on it on Amazon because it just it just signals right away that this is not a high quality product. Uh, so um, you kind of have to be you know, in the know to even, to even know uh, that you need a publisher.
0: So let's close with a general question. Um, We started off by saying that the internet's going to kill off, people thought the internet was going to kill off intermediaries. And of course it created through technology, a whole bunch of intermediaries that we've talked about. Some of them kayak or Uber or open table. These are intermediaries where there aren't people providing a skill and yet there's still plenty of cases where middlemen are actually human beings providing a skill like the wedding planner we talked about and any others. Where do you think it's going? And what advice would you give to somebody who's worried about technology taking away their job? They're, you know, the travel agent of the past. But a lot of them did lose their jobs, and I assume there are other jobs that are at risk right now because of technology and, and the ability to provide these services cheaper through and of close enough value that human intermediaries, human middlemen will be um, obsolete in certain areas. What are your thoughts on where that might be going and what advice you might give?
1: Yeah, I think middlemen are becoming um, more important, as I, as I hope I've made clear. Um, I think the travel agent example is a good one. where We have fewer travel agents, um, the ones who no longer provide value. The mere order takers are the ones that have largely fallen by the wayside, or if they exist at all, they're, they're making close to minimum wage. Um, the ones that are succeeding are ones who figured out what value they can still create in this day and age of, of abundant information. And in the case of a travel agent, um, it's, it's a question of uh, becoming an expert and being able to make sense of this glut of information that is out there. Um but um, you know, there's certainly people who can be a certifier and use their expertise that way, uh, who can commit to being in the business for the long term and thereby also be an enforcer and you know, all these other roles that I've talked about. So I think what the future holds and in both um in terms of um human competition and competition from machines is to um, continually think about um, wh- what you're doing to provide value and what you need to be charging that customers will be willing to pay as, as a fraction of the value that you're providing.
0: My guest today has been Marina Krakowski. Her book is The Middleman Economy. Marina, thanks for being part of EconTalk.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Rust.